and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour across Australia on the Community Radio Network where we talk about science. Who are we? Well, I'm Stu and with me this week I have Chris. Hello. And I have Claire. Hello, Stu. Hi. Now, Claire, tell me what sciencey thing have you brought in this week to talk about? Well... It's pretty unavoidable, but, um, you know, have to talk about it, have to get it out there. We have to discuss this. It has been the hottest uh, month ever. Um, July was the hottest month ever. And, um, yeah, we need to talk about that because climate change is here and it's, um, it is affecting a lot of people around the world at the moment. Um, so... Yeah, time to talk about that a little bit and some new research um, that has just been published that looks, it sort of um, models some of the effects of climate change that you don't initially think are going to be sort of adverse effects of climate change, not just, you know, the wildfires and your um, melting, but um, uh, some of the stuff of science fiction, which is the release of potential pathogens from yesteryear. Um, so, you know, potential bacteria that was, has been locked up in ice and, um, is then released once that ice melts, um, what is the risk to ecosystems? So some scientists have done some research into that and modeled it, um, and have come up with some, some sort of statistical analysis of how likely it is to cause further ecological damage. So I'm going to be talking a bit about that. It's real, uh, real X Filesy sort of stuff, isn't it? Mm, the um, yeah. mel- melting, melting ice, releasing stuff back that was been frozen for, or maybe mm. the thing. Do you remember the thing? The uh, uh, there's, there's definitely been quite a few sci-fi, yeah. Um, yeah, sci-fi bits and pieces and works that have examined this, but um, not a lot of modeling and science has been done on it so it's quite it's 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 interesting and important especially you know right now absolutely and chris what have you brought in for us this week oh well look look, it's been been an exciting time in science um and uh look my x feed um has been full of you know stuff like x x being twitter yeah 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 program Formerly known as Twitter. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm embracing it. Um, speaking of <laughs> X Files kind of content, now, like, um, yeah, like, there's been obviously the the climate um, catastrophes that you're going to be discussing. Claire has been a big um, point of contention on on um, on the line, and uh, as well as things like you know the um, the UFO hearings at US Congress, which some people seem to have got excited about, but. You know, from a scientific point of view, there's really no new evidence there. So I don't know that we can really cover any of that much because until some actual evidence emerges, it's just people talking. I mean, we were talking about that just a couple of weeks ago, mm. Chris, about, you know, the, the lack of evidence. Sure, there's lots of theories, but there's no actual evidence and lots of opinions about it. But Yeah, yeah. They're saying sh- the same sh- things. Show us the evidence. They're saying the same things that they've, they've always said just... You know, in in Congress this time. That's all. Um, but yeah, another one that's that's emerged very recently though is the latest claim about room temperature superconductors. Um, now, another thing that we discussed quite um, fairly recently on the program, I think back in March this year, 
uh, talked about a claim for room temperature superconductors. This is quite different because this is at room temperature and at uh, atmospheric pressure was the previous one was a, a ridiculously high pressure. Um, so it's got a lot of people excited. Um, and uh, yeah, but no one really knows whether it's real yet or not. And so I thought I'd have a look at this, essentially a breaking story, um, see what's going on with that and how long it will be or how we will know whether it's real or not. There's a lot of hijinks, a lot of drama going on in this particular story. So it is quite an, quite an interesting one. But um, yes, yeah, so I'll also try and vaguely connect it back to the other two things like the the climate and the UFO concepts as well in a kind of indirect segue, if I can manage that. Well, I'll be interested to see how successful your segue is. Um, and we're not talking about a two-wheeled vehicle that stays upright on its gyroscopes. We're talking about a transition. Now, before we start the show, I thought I should just mention our Lost in Science trivia for all of our Melbourne listeners is on August the 14th, Monday, August the 14th at 7pm at the Karen Bush Hotel in Abbotsford, where you can um, play sciencey games and win sciencey prizes and show off your brains and show off your friends and give us some money to keep uh, Lost in Science on the air at 3CR as well, uh, which is always fun. Um, so if you do want tickets, get in touch with us at lostinsight at gmail.com and we will sort you out. But for now, uh, let's get on with the show. So it's very hot in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, like catastrophically hot. In fact, in July 2023, the world experienced an unprecedented heat wave and it set some new devastating records as the hottest month in history. So data published by the United Nations and the European Union's top climate agencies, the World Meteorological Organization, and Copernicus, they show that the average temperature for the first three weeks of July is um, tracking significantly higher than the current record from 2019. Um, and 21 of 30 Earth's 30 hottest individual days on record, that's 21 out of 30 of any days occurred in July. That is incredible and devastating. Um, so, yeah, just to go to one of the climate scientists from Leipzig University, Carsten Houston, estimating July finished a um, 0 0.2 degrees Celsius warmer than the 2019 record. So making it not only the warmest month on record, but potentially in thousands of years. And all this happening before El Nino, the, um, the weather system, um, climate system, I should say, it has even kicked in yet. So according to climate scientists, it's this is a, you know, according to many people, it's it's a very worrying situation because you know El Nino is a major climate driver and brings with it warmer than normal global average temperatures. Um, it's not the same everywhere around the world, but in general, warmer than average. So we're looking at a sweltering northern hemisphere. Um, you know, caused by climate change, followed by what is being reported by researchers as now um, an extended hot period across the globe. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, 
obviously this is like a heat wave conditions at the moment and it's not saying that uh, every July is necessarily going to be this hot going forward. But like saying the fact that this has occurred before El Nino has gotten underway doesn't bode well for the, the coming year at least, does it? No, no, it really doesn't. And, you know, amid rising temperatures and, you know, like we talked about the catastrophic wildfires and the heat wave, the sea levels, um, there's another potential ecological disaster that, you know, I'm sure we don't want to think about, but it's always good to, you know, you need to talk about this stuff. Um, And that is the idea that um, ancient bacteria could be returned to and to ecosystems that have been under permafrost once that permafrost thaws. Yeah, because for centuries, the Arctic permafrost, it's preserved microscopic organisms in a state of suspended animation um, and locked away from the world. Um, But, you know, as the permafrost or, you know, frozen ground begins to melt, ancient bacteria um, are released into the environment. So this like um, mammoths being, you know, defrosted and come back or, or dare I say, Captain America perhaps being put on ice and, and coming back. Yeah, and, you know, um, there's been some recent research. Now, this isn't thawed permafrost, but um, this is uh, taking a... a um, round, t- taking a, a piece of ice that had a roundworm in it, so a nematode, um, scientists thawed that nematode, that roundworm, and have actually brought it back to life um, from an ice sample from 46,000 years ago. Oh, so that, that's um, more than just a bacteria. That's like a that's multi-celled a, organism. Yeah, that's a nematode, which if, you know, regular listeners will remember, Stu, you had a story on nematodes very recently. Yeah, it's it's an animal. It's It's well beyond bacteria level. Yeah, yeah. So if nematodes can come back, then um, bacteria probably. It's a lot easier for a single-celled organism, I imagine. Now, there are many scientists um, many scientists worried about the implications here. And as we said in the intro, there are many science fiction stories out there that have, you know, made their case speculating on what would happen from, you know, with the release of different ancient bacteria, nematodes, mammoths, whatever you have, um, what would happen in terms of human health and ecology, um, especially as these bacteria, you know, they date back millions of years. So most immune systems and adaptive immune system these days, you know, won't won't be ready for um, to be able to recognise and fight some of these potentially pathogenic bacteria. So their reintroduction into our world and our ecosystems and, you know, potentially our bodies, it poses danger. Um, And up until now, that's been quite difficult to quantify. But there has been a new global study, and it's from the European Commission Joint Research Centres and Flinders University here in Australia. And it was published this week. Um, And the the paper's got a great name. It's called Time Travelling Pathogens and Their Risk to Ecological Communities. Great Scott. (laughs) That's great, isn't it? Oh, dear. So can they they go backwards in time as well as forwards in time? What are their (laughs) capabilities here? 
Um, it doesn't actually specify in the paper whether they are forwards and backwards travelling, time-travelling pathogens, but, you know, I'll leave that one up to you. Um, it's in an open access journal, uh, PLOS Computational Biology, and here they calculate the ecological risks posed by the ancient microbes. So one thing to note about this study is that they all of this was done on computer by using computer modeling. So the researchers constructed simulated experiments where they put in place ancient pathogens from the past into a simulated world ecosystem and modeled how these simulated ancient pathogens could invade communities of um, bacteria-like hosts that are living in the present. They then compared the effects of these sort of invading pathogens on, and how that on host bacteria in communities where there was, you know, there was no invasion. So they, they did it against a, a computer modeled control as well. And what they found in their simulation was that the ancient invading pathogens could often survive and evolve in the modern world. So in about 3% of cases, um, the pathogens became dominant in a new environment. So overall from their modeling, um, around 1% of the invaders um, were very unpredictable. And in this unpredictability, they found that around 30% of species in that environment died out. Um, while interestingly, others increased diversity by 12%. So um, it, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, an in, it's interesting to sort of see how they've sort of been able to, to simulate this. Now you might think that 1% of released pathogens might seem small, but given the sheer amount of ancient microbes that could you know be released into the environment um, the researchers say these outbreaks represent a substantial danger now they point to an actual risk um, deriving from the rare events where pathogens you know currently trapped in the permafrost and ice produce these ecological impacts um, and you know in the worst case the invasion of a single ancient pathogen could reduce the size of its host community by about 30 percent when compared to our non-invasive controls now like a lot of climate news from this month this isn't really that great but the researchers reiterate that you know as a society we do need to understand the potential risk posed by these ancient microbes so we can prepare for any unintended consequences of their release into the modern world so unfortunately, it's no longer science fiction, but there and there is really a risk that we um, we need to be prepared to defend against. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I find myself once again talking about room temperature superconductors. Now, uh, superconductors, as you recall, are materials that have zero resistance. They basically are perfect conductors of electricity. 
Um, so they're highly sought after uh, and claims of, well, you know, they normally work at very cold temperatures. So claims of superconductors that work at room temperature um, are, yeah, very, um, very important, I suppose, put it that way. Um, now, like I said, we discussed this last back in March. There was a purported discovery of a superconductor that worked at room temperature but at very high pressures um, it was quite controversial um, and I'll actually touch on that again a bit later because that is relevant to our story um, there was some, some allegations of academic misconduct involved in that particular story um, so mm. we'll circle back to that one eventually because it will re-enter our story but this new claim is from some researchers in Korea who claim to have discovered a superconductor that works not only at room temperature, but at normal atmospheric pressure. Now, this was announced to the world uh, towards the end of July in two papers on the, the physics archive. Um, and there is a lot to explain here. So they're not peer-reviewed papers, they're just preprints on the archive. Um, the first paper had uh, three authors, and the second paper had six authors, and they're going over much the same territory. The author list was slightly different. The two lead authors were the same on each one, but the other authorship was a bit different. Now, um, and that is also important to this story, as it will turn out. Uh, now, as I said, these are not peer-reviewed papers. That's not everyone getting very excited. Um, but it has stopped a bit of the some of the reporting, like if a lot of kind of reliable outlets are, I think, holding their, their breath on this particular one. Um, yeah. But I should explain how this works. So um, it basically, it's fairly common practice that when uh, scientists write papers and they submit them to journals, then before it actually gets published, they will send what they call a preprint, which is kind of a pre-publication version of their paper to their colleagues. This has long been the practice. But back in about the 1990s or so, uh, some physicists set up an online archive where people basically could submit their preprints into that archive and that everyone could get everyone else's research for free. Um, so you didn't have to like contact someone and say hey can I get a copy of your research basically everyone just uploaded their stuff to this server and uh, regardless of whether it was going to get published or not in a journal like it, it was actually very much um, back when I was studying it was very much a free-for-all I think it's now been you know you had to have I think certain kind of institutional affiliations to get published or certain credibility to get um, to be able to submit to the archive these days but it still remains a thing that it is prior to peer review process i mean it, it sounds like a really nice idea but in practice it, it obviously has some drawbacks that people can put up stuff that maybe doesn't ever get published and and sort of that that's a bit of a problem in itself look we've seen that certainly the case with um because it's now expanded to other fields apart from just physics expanded today to biology and medicine and that sort of thing we had the bio archive was a big thing during the covid pandemic essentially it allows you to yeah to be a lot rap a lot faster uh, get your work out there a lot faster than going through a journal. Um, and, you know, there are pluses and minuses to the peer review process, I've got to say. I mean, it doesn't, all it does is try to look at the process you've used. It doesn't guarantee that the research is right or even that there hasn't, say, been misconduct of any sort. Yeah. And yeah. one could argue that by making the research more rapidly available, it allows quicker analysis, which certainly seems what seems to be happening 
in this particular case. So the, the subject, the substance in question, I should get onto that, is something called LK99. Um, it is a lead apatite, not apatite, but apatite, um, which is a type of phosphate mineral. So this one has... Is that, is that it's, a, it's an apatite for conduction. Hey, right? Very good. Right? Yeah. So this one has lead and copper in it. Now, the South Korean researchers say that it can be made um, by combining the minerals lanakite, which is lead and sulfur oxide, and copper phosphide. Um, and that the material they get it shows um, signs of superconductivity at normal air pressure and at temperatures up to 127 degrees Celsius. Um, it has basically, like I said, zero resistance and it does this thing called the Meissner effect. So superconductors have this effect where they repel magnetic fields and one of the, um, the consequences of this is that they can be levitated above a magnet. And mm. so they produced a video showing it kind of levitating above a magnet. Um, look, there's a lot. This is this is quite the story, I've got to say. Um, so look, it's called LK99. It's named after the two main researchers who are Sukbei Lee and Jihoon Kim. Apologies for my um, mangling of Korean names here, but um, there's no way around it. Um, so L and K for Lee and Kim, and they discovered this material back in 1999. So that's that's quite a long. They've time been working ago. on this for a while, yeah. So they back yeah. back then they were working with um, a researcher who had their own theory of one-dimensional superconductors. It was kind of a bit of a a different theory to super, of superconductors than a lot of people had. Um, but they were kind of following those ideas and they discovered this material. They kept tinkering with it for years as they had other jobs. Eventually they set up an organization called Q-Center, um, basically to, to work on this in more detail. And in 2018, they brought on a physicist to help them, someone called Young Wan Kwon. So the three of them there in 2020, they tried to submit a paper on their research because they've been going along trying to basically reliably replicate this material. They um, tried to submit a paper on it to the, the prestigious journal Nature, but they were rejected at that point, and it was partly due to the, the aforementioned controversies of these other high-temperature superconductors. Um, the researcher there, Ranga Diaz, um, has had papers retracted. There's been another one just recently retracted. Um, due to, uh, yeah, various allegations of, uh, I think, you know, um, data being consistent, uh, something wrong with the methods, these sort of things. And so they were basically told to come back when they had something a bit more solid, essentially like that, suggested maybe they should publish locally and then, you know, get in a peer-reviewed journal and then try Nature. Um what they instead tried to do, it seems, was they decided they need someone from a Western country to help out. So they brought in a Korean-American researcher, a physical chemist, Hyun Tak Kim. So um, that's the situation, the team that you, main team that you had working on it. Now, the recent development started on the 22nd of July when the aforementioned physicist, Kwon, um, basically uploaded a paper um, 
on this superconductor because they're basically all getting anxious at this point. They'd had this thing mm. sitting in the pipeline for a long time. They were thinking they were ready to publish it. Um, they were worried that someone else might scoop them or that some spies might get a hold of it. So they really wanted to publish. Quan jumped the gun and uploaded the paper with um, himself uh, and Lee and the other Kim as as the um, the three researchers. Um, following that, uh, the the other Kim, Hyun Tak Kim, who was in America at the time, um, got a notification that basically this paper had been uploaded. So he very quickly rushed out his paper, which wasn't really ready for publication. He rushed and uploaded that with, again, the other Kim and Lee as the lead researchers, himself as the third author, and then three others who had worked on it as well. And they, in the paper, they clearly set out who did what in this paper. did not include Quan in that particular article. So you basically got two kind of pictures of the research. Um, as I said, the papers were a bit rushed out. Now, one of the reasons it's thought that Quan jumped the gun with the three-author paper is because a Nobel Prize can be awarded to a maximum of three people. So it is believed that he was perhaps trying to get precedent on that, even though he doesn't. He seems to no longer be part of the core team from what has been able to be established. Um, and so now I think that the, the lead authors are trying to get that paper retracted, the three-author paper retracted, because it's not the official paper. So the six-author paper is the official paper, and the three-author one is, yeah, like I said, trying to jump in. Meanwhile, Quan has also presented this work at a conference, um, and again, trying to, I guess, claim the, the priority here. A um, little side note, in his presentation, he used the font Comic Sans, which you may recall was also used at the announcement of the discovery of the Higgs boson. So... You know, it's it's how you announce your uh, groundbreaking physics discoveries, <laughs> it seems. But yeah, so essentially you've got these rushed papers on this very controversial topic. There's a lot of drama going on about who's actually working on this and who's taking credit for it. Um, clearly they believe it. The researchers believe it quite well. Um, but look, until it's replicated, no one's really going to know. As I said, they produced a video showing this material sort of levitating above a magnet, but it's not fully levitating, like one corner of it just doesn't leave the ground. And they're saying that's oh, because the material's not quite perfect, that, you know, the, it's not, you know, they couldn't get all the impurities out. Um, they're working on improving their process. Um, yeah, it's not entirely clear. From the material available at the moment, it's not clear that it definitely is a superconductor. So it really relies on, you know, other people, um, to, really relies on other people replicating this. And although it seems like a fairly simple material from the description of it, it also was very finicky to produce, it appears. And like it took them years to get it right. Um, I said I'm trying to connect to the other topics. I mean, obviously superconductivity, if it is real, room temperature, atmospheric pressure superconductivity will give us a whole lot of new technologies. Like it's, it would be a game changer in electricity transmission when we're looking at the need for renewable energy, maybe being transmitted over long distances. Um, it would give us levitating trains it would give us better medical devices because your MRI machines rely on superconductors to get the high magnetic fields um, yeah there's a lot of potential application of this it is quite huge and could be a great assistance in the climate crisis or getting through the climate crisis um, like I said, it's also connected to the UFO story in that I said, you know, we need evidence for the UFOs. And same here, we, um, 
we've got these papers, we've got these scientists jumping up and down about it, but I think we can't quite believe it until it has been replicated, until the evidence is there. We have It pays to be sceptical of these things. You know, we've been here before with things like cold fusion and those sort of technologies. Um, you know, you essentially have to wait and see whether it works out. Um, but, the, you know, there are plenty of teams around the world working on this and trying to replicate it. So hoping that soon we will find out whether it's real or not, or it could just be one of those things that, fades away and becomes one of those trivia stories of uh, 2023. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.